0: When you look at these numbers, they are scary. They're, they're really jaw-dropping. I've never seen anything like them in my career. But you've got to keep it in, in the context that this is an investment in public health.
1: Hello and welcome to Region Ahead, a podcast from SEMCOG, the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments. I'm Trevor Layton, and in this episode, I spoke with a group of economists from the University of Michigan about what the future may hold for the economy of the United States, Michigan, and the seven-county SEMCOG region. The University of Michigan's Research Seminar in Quantitative Economics, or RSQE, is a modeling and forecasting operation that produces quarterly forecasts of both the U.S. and Michigan economies. SEMCOG has partnered with RSQE on its long-range forecasts for the past couple decades, the most recent being the 2045 Regional Forecast for Southeast Michigan which was adopted in 2017. RSQE released a special update to its most recent quarterly forecast after the COVID-19 pandemic brought the economy to a near complete standstill in March. To learn about this most recent forecast, I was joined by Dr. Gabriel Ehrlich, director for RSQE, Donald Grimes, its senior research area specialist, and Dr. Daniil Maniankov, its U.S. forecasting specialist. In our conversation, they discuss the ways in which the COVID-19 environment of 2020 has altered the way economists are interpreting traditional economic measures and the need to look at new indicators to anticipate what the next months and years may hold. We also take a look at what local governments might be able to expect in terms of impacts to their revenues. Now, here's my conversation with Gabe Ehrlich, Don Grimes, and Daniil Mariankov. Okay, Gabe, thanks for being with us today. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the University of Michigan's Research Seminar in Quantitative Economics?
0: Absolutely, thanks for having us. The Research Seminar in Quantitative Economics is the world's longest continuously running economic forecasting unit. We were founded at the University of Michigan in 1952 by Lawrence Klein, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, for his work, basically starting the field of economic forecasting. And we forecast the United States and Michigan economies four times per year. And we also forecast some local economies uh, throughout the state of Michigan, including uh, a forecasting project with the city of Detroit and, and some other projects uh, with Oakland County and Washtenaw County. And then we also do uh, economic impact analysis.
1: I believe you also do the, the long range forecast for, for Southeast Michigan, which uh, SEMCOG uses. Um, so we've got some familiarity with you there. So the impacts of COVID-19, you know, are pretty broad reaching. Are you seeing those um, in, in your normal indicators that you use for forecasting? Or are you having to go beyond that and, and look at some other things?
0: That's a great question, Trevor. So economic indicators produced by the government are the most reliable indicators of, of where the economy is, or at least where the economy has been in the past. But... The problem when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic is that the economic data produced by the government typically lags the actual economy by a little while. So when we get a government statistic, it's usually backwards looking. Some government statistics come out with a pretty high frequency. Uh, The most timely indicator we get is from initial unemployment insurance claims and we actually have about five weeks worth of unemployment insurance claims since uh, the pandemic really started taking a major toll on the economy well over 20 million claims have been filed so that shows that the pandemic is having a very large impact on the economy, as we all know from just from from following the news. But a lot of the other statistics that we follow are not showing the full extent of the impact so far. So for instance, we don't know uh, what the unemployment rate is for the month of April yet, and we won't find that out until early in May. And we also don't have an estimate even for first quarter gross domestic product, which will show uh, the impact in the month of March. Um, So we'll start getting that data at the end of this month for the first quarter of the year for GDP and in early May for the employment situation in April. At the state level, the data will lag even further behind. And so, as you mentioned in your question, we've had to turn to uh, other higher frequency indicators of where the economy is. And Danil, I'll I'll let you if if you have anything to add to that. I
2: mean, so the. Gabe covered the standard government indicators, and they are lagging. So we have been uh, trying to pay attention to the emerging data, which is of unknown quality as of yet, but at least it provides some uh, timely look at what's going on. So we've been looking at some data from uh, payroll, uh, like regular hours processing for small businesses, so something called home base. It gave us an idea what's going on with overall how many of those businesses are closed how many are uh, providing severely reduced hours to their employees stuff like that we've been looking at some some indicators of foot traffic available from several uh, well tech giants and such as like Google which has a uh, good good page for every state to see what's going on in terms of tracking how people are staying at home, but also useful for us to see what's going on with food traffic to places like restaurants, department stores, uh, general grocery stores, and stuff like that. There is some third-party data on the same. So, I mean, we've been been looking at a lot of high-frequency data. It's of unknown quality at this point, but this is a significant input into our forecasting at the moment until we get better measures from the government.
1: Okay, and then is the... Is there anything else um, that you can tell us about um, the impacts that we're seeing um, in, the, in these early stages um, despite, despite the lag from COVID-19? I mean, obviously, you need to look no further than out your window to see that there are you know, fewer cars on the road, um, maybe more people walking, but with fewer places to go. Uh, so uh, are there any other um, impacts that, that you've been able to see so far?
2: I mean, one interesting piece in the foot traffic data. As of last few days, food traffic to Home Depot is exploding. Uh, I'm guessing everybody's trying to, I don't know. I mean, this is this is a personal experience. So they've closed up their um, home and garden center, but they are allowing uh, curbside pickup. And I mean, it's starting to get warm. So I'm guessing you need to do all those trips that you delayed. So I mean, at least that part of the market is is, is doing
0: well. Daniel, if I can add, you know, the the other thing that we're following closely is, of course, the financial markets. Uh, So financial markets are very volatile and they're they're more volatile than what we call the real economy. So, you know, the activity happening on Main Street, people going to their jobs, um, asset prices uh, move around, you know, quite a bit, but What's really useful about looking at the financial markets is that they're forward-looking. So whereas a lot of the official sources of data are backwards-looking and and can lag substantially, the financial markets really give us a sense of what do investors expect to happen in the future. Um, And so prior to the pandemic really um, starting to shut down the economy, we saw interest rates falling and we saw stock prices really uh, cratering stock prices have recovered quite a bit of of what they lost uh they're certainly not back to where they were uh, but we have seen uh the government's policy responses seem to to get a bottom under interest rates and especially stock prices so it does seem like investors expect the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we're seeing from washington dc to have an impact on the economy Um, and so you see it both you see it in stock prices you also see it in indicators um such as credit spreads, which suggests that the Fed's operations to keep markets smoothly functioning are having some effect.
1: Okay, so when you're when you're forecasting and and at the uh, the research seminar in quantitative economics, you all are typically doing forecasting on a on a quarterly basis. So you're keeping pretty close tabs on things. Um, one of the one of the indicators that I think a lot of People, even if they're not economists, might be aware of is that it's a lot cheaper to, to fill up a gas tank these days. Um, I think the
2: last I heard, uh, a barrel of oil is going for about a dollar. So, what does that tell us? At the moment, and I'm sure a lot of people saw on the news that some some uh, oil contracts turn briefly turned negative. There is basically oversupply on the market of crude oil, and to the extent that. Um, I mean, you can fill up, but you're not driving. So that's not much of a benefit. So what's going on at the moment is the market is adjusting to a lot lower uh, demand in the near term. And everybody's basically awash of the inventories. So it's 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 probably going to stay low until we start reopening in a major way, and not only us, but the rest of the world, because the, the oil market is somewhat global. And we basically, uh, I mean, I would not expect uh, prices at the pump to go negative because the markets for crude oil and gasoline are quite disconnected. So what happened for oil? There was a local uh, shortage of storage of oil. And people were basically paid to show up with their own storage and and take delivery. It's a lot easier to stop. refining plant than to stop your own oil well. So basically, we do not expect negative prices for, for filling up the pump, but we expect uh, gasoline prices to stay low at least for probably for a few quarters because the economy is going to be ramping up, but only gradually.
1: Are there any other assumptions that you make based on on the inputs to your forecast that may be relevant for us to be thinking about?
0: Yeah, so I think... The, the biggest set of assumptions we've had to make is uh, how and when will the economy begin reopening? So our forecast has assumed um, that we'll start seeing the economy reopening in phases as we get towards late May and early June. Uh, Governor Whitmer recently extended her stay at home order through May 15th, although with some relaxation of, of some of the rules in the order. and. We do expect the economy to reopen in phases. It takes time to assess whether the relaxation of the measures uh, is causing any any problems or if it's proceeding smoothly. So again, we we expect um, the major reopening of the economy to start happening here in Michigan in the second half of May and then in, in the beginning of June, and that's that's probably the most important assumption in our forecast, we're not epidemiologists, but that's consistent with what we're seeing from a number of epidemiological models. And I, I think that, you know, that that's, that's really gonna be the most important thing to determining uh, what happens from here.
2: There is another important assumption that it's not as important as a near-term dynamic, but at the moment, we do not have a significant recurring outbreak in the fall which is still a significant possibility. So, I mean, what I mean by that, if there is an outbreak significant enough to necessitate another sort of stay-at-home order like restrictions on businesses. So if that were come to pass, our forecast will probably be uh, overly, well, we're already a little bit optimistic, so it will turn out to be substantially uh, more optimistic than what will likely happen.
1: Okay, so the, the current assumptions of, of your forecast are that once things begin to come back online o- over the summer, that they will stay online and, and it's not factoring in a a, a potential um, downturn uh, due to a new outbreak.
2: So we basically expect some of the measures being rolled out, like uh, some workplace safety, some individual uh, safety, like disinfection policies and stuff like that, mask wearing, to preclude a major outbreak. There's probably still going to be a little bit, but nothing that would necessitate blanket shutdowns of a lot of sectors.
1: What about schools? So as we all know schools in in the state of Michigan and and many other states um, are closed for the remainder of this school year some amount of, of online learning is, is able to happen but obviously um, if, if students are home from school especially if they're much younger students um, somebody needs to to be there with them so um, you know if you're talking about June or July you're you're already getting into summer but um what what is the the impact of of education or, or the status of education on on your forecast, if any?
0: It's a really important question, and I think it's something that policy leaders and makers are are grappling with. Um, there's no question that uh, many people count on school being there uh, for child care, and and that's going to be important for people to get back to work. The question is: Is there some combination of online learning and protective measures within schools. For instance, uh, h- having staggered schedules where students, for instance, attend um, part of the day or alternate days um, in shifts where you, we could get schools uh, back to a more normal amount of functioning uh, if the, the pandemic is still um, really causing problems in the fall. Uh, it's also possible we, you know, we are not epidemiologists again, but it's possible that the public health situation will have improved by that time to where schools can reopen uh, as they, you know, normally would have last year. So I think that that's that's going to be an important question, and the reality is we don't have an answer to that yet.
1: Can we talk a little bit about what the specific circumstances are? in Michigan or even in Southeast Michigan? Are there are there unique kind of indicators or, or impacts that we should be looking at or, or thinking about around here?
3: Well, we have uh, done a forecast for the uh, seven county Simcog region, um, which is all of Southeast Michigan. And we are expecting that the uh, job loss uh, in the second quarter, which is how we are measuring uh, the hit um, will be a little worse in Southeast Michigan than in the state of Michigan overall. But then we think that there will be a slightly stronger recovery um, in Southeast Michigan uh, starting in the third quarter of this year. So we we go down a little more in Southeast Michigan, uh, but we come back a little bit stronger. That is consistent with uh, history where Southeast Michigan has, has always uh, tended to be more adversely affected by a recession than uh, the rest of the state and certainly the rest of the country.
1: So one kind of specific example in, in Southeast Michigan uh, is the city of Detroit and its reliance on revenue from casinos, um, which they've taken a big hit um, and, and had to take some, some painful actions with city employees. Is there anything you can say about um, other potential um, budget impacts on on local governments, perhaps to do with with revenue sharing from the state?
0: Yeah, so I think um, revenue sharing is going to decline. There's two pieces of revenue sharing. There's statutory revenue sharing and constitutional revenue sharing. It's really going to be the constitutional piece. Without legislative action from the state government, it's going to be the constitutional piece that will take the decline. You know, just just directly from the economics. We don't have uh, specific numbers estimates for revenue sharing uh, right at this time, but it uh, it will be substantial. And I think it's it's really important, and it, it it gets to the need for assistance for state and local governments from the federal government. So we really are looking to Washington D.C. The state has a balanced budget requirement. So the state cannot do its own Michigan version of the CARES Act and and borrow money to help get local governments through this. State revenues are going to be down substantially because of the pandemic. We're estimating about $2.5 billion in this fiscal year, so fiscal year 2020, and actually over $3 billion in fiscal 2021. So the, the state is facing its own Substantial budget shortfall, so there's not going to be extra resources on the states' end to help local governments face the the budget shortfalls that they're facing, and certainly um, that will show up in revenue sharing. So we really are looking to the federal government now to help uh, provide the assistance as as really the only entity in the economy that can help smooth the cost of this out over time.
1: Okay, so if the cavalry does come in the form uh, of some next phase of um, the COVID nineteen response from the federal level uh, with, with new legislation, um, what might that look like? Um, what what potentially could be in a new package?
2: I mean, it will likely be just grants to state to a large extent, because that this is what's most needed. It will likely backstop uh, some of the social programs, because I mean, states have to cover their portion of, of, of Medicaid. So that will probably see incre- increased roles and increased share will probably the feds will probably cover the portion that normally goes, which which is normally the responsibility of the state. But in, in most likelihood, they'll probably, well, if it happens and when it happens, uh, they'll just have to be providing grants. Because what in reality was happening is that there is a, the economy stopped for a substantial per- percentage of uh, the year. Uh, so there is no other way than just, making it direct transfers. Um, they may come up with some creative schemes which do the same thing. But ultimately, it will have to be transfers to the states from from, from the Fed. I mean, basically it will basically have to be transfers to be useful. Because everything else will likely lead to steep uh, employment cuts and steep cuts in level of services. and. I'm sure it will happen at some point. But at this point, it's not clear that this is happening in the next few weeks. So this this part of stimulus will probably drag on, I want to say, at least until June. Because I mean, it, it must happen. It's, it's hard to envision senators voting against aid to their states, uh, regardless of their particular uh, political affiliation. But it will probably take some wrestling. Uh, so. I would not expect this to come very soon.
0: Trevor, just to um, back up for, for one second, you know, we did talk about revenue sharing a little bit. We don't have uh, any kind of full year or long-term estimates for constitutional revenue sharing. We do have some back of the envelope calculations uh, for what we might be expecting or looking at in the near future. Um, so just on the constitutional side, it looks like the, the June payments might be Around three quarters of the normal amount, and that that covers activity essentially from the March and April period. Um, I, we don't we don't have our Michigan tax expert on with us. Um, it would be nice if, if we did. So please forgive me if I'm I'm getting the exact details wrong here. And then uh, the August payment might come in even lower than that. So so it might be as low as half of of the normal amount. So that's you know it's it's a pretty substantial hit. And and to Daniil's point, it's hard to see how Congress. Uh, would avoid or or vote against aid to the states. Uh, it really does not seem to be a highly uh, partisan issue because th- uh, the pandemic is affecting the economy in every state. It's not a blue state thing or a red state thing. It's a it's a United States thing. And the other point I want to make about this is that you know so, something people can overlook about the recovery from the Great Recession is that it was a lot slower than it had to be because state and local governments uh, really were cutting back on employment in the aftermath of the recession because tax revenues were down. And that kept employment from growing at the pace we would have liked to see. And that's what we're worried about here. So if we don't get assistance from the federal government for state and local governments, the recovery from this is going to be slower than it needs to be. Okay. I think that's really really great point.
1: Um, Don, if, if we could, I'd like to come back to, to you for a moment to, to talk a little bit more about Southeast Michigan. Um, we know that um, the auto industry is is still a huge, huge factor in, in our economy here um, in Southeast Michigan, there are um, other important sectors. Um, we have the we have the financial sector, of course, we have we have healthcare. Um, is there anything that that we can see um, right now in, in those areas or, or any others that are that are of particular significance to, to Southeast Michigan? Perhaps anything we've seen so far or, or what we should be looking out for?
3: We have a, a very heavy uh, manufacturing economy. And of course, you think about the auto industry, but there are also a lot of uh, machinery that goes into factories. So we have a lot of durable uh, machinery manufacturing uh and that is basically an investment decision by corporations. Um, given what we're going through right now, that's probably going to lag uh, behind in terms of the recovery. Even once we get going, of course, corporations are going to have to be able to finance uh, investment. So that, that's probably going to be a, a very, fairly slow uh, part of the recovery. And of course, we have a disproportionately large share Uh, of that activity in Southeast Michigan. It's, it's one of the other areas where we're going to take a hit.
1: What, uh, I guess if, if you had to, you know, briefly put it um, in, in our, in your latest quarterly um, forecast, um, what, what's the main takeaway here? Like what's the, what's the, What's the what's the big thing uh, for our economy um, that we need to be looking for? We, we we're all going to be tracking the pandemic. Obviously, we we want to know is 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 the outbreak continuing to spread and and how quickly and how severely? We all of course want to know whether there's going to be um, assistance coming for state and local governments from the federal level. But but is there anything else? Any other um, main um, things that we should be
0: looking at, Daniil, If you want to take a shot from the U.S. side the statistics that the government publishes are going
2: to look scary for the next several months. So important thing to remember is that the worst will pass. And as the uh, economy recovers or reopens, we will see some improvement. But we will not see it in the published data until probably late in the summer. if the, if the improvement starts, if the reopening starts in June, uh, we'll probably get good read on that in early July for the employment numbers. And any other statistics will come like in early August. So in economic things, thing will, things will likely look grim for the, for the duration of the summer and expect some uh, improvement in official numbers by the end of the summer. Now, some of the higher frequency uh, data that's not has not been used until this pandemic hit will probably start improving sooner. So, we'll. If you want to get an accurate read of what's going on, I suggest people pay attention to some of the weekly data that we have. So, one of that is going to be the initial claims. Uh, a second measure that's closely related is going to be continued claims, because this is where you will see. People coming back to work potentially, if the uh, paycheck protection program turns out to be successful. So, as a reminder, in that law, to get loan forgiveness, you had to you have to bring people back on your payroll by the end of June. So, this is where you will see people dropping off the continued payroll, the continued claims rolls. And this is the indicator we'll have to be watching to see to what extent the PPP worked. But I mean, the big message is near term is gonna look grim, but but don't despair too much because we expect the rebound to start uh, fairly soon. It's just the official data is not gonna catch up to it quickly.
1: As was discussed a, a couple of minutes ago, Michigan's not the only state um, facing this crisis and, and the United States is not the only country. We weren't the first over the past several weeks. It, the United States has certainly taken a pole position in, in terms of the the impact uh, of the virus, but there may be other parts of the world that either see um, a resurgence uh, of of an outbreak or or perhaps a, a new outbreak where there hasn't been one yet. And the reason I bring that up is to ask um, Don, you, you talked a little bit about manufacturing and and the decisions that that will come into play for our manufacturing industry to to be up and running at, at full steam. So part of that is is having our workforce and, and our safety here in Southeast Michigan squared away. But another part of that is we have global s- supply chains to think about. Is there anything uh, you'd like to say about that?
3: Well, that's going to keep the um, wholesale trade industry very busy as they try to line up parts for the manufacturers um, as they uh, get back into into play. I guess going back to Daniel's point, I just want to you know the next few months we're going to be going down the numbers are going to be awful we know that uh, there's enough real-time information that just to show that the real uncertainty in our business is when and how strong we're going to get a turnaround um you know and and that's actually in some ways the bigger bigger unknown now um and and uh clearly the federal government both uh, in terms of fiscal policy and the monetary policy at the Federal Reserve are doing everything they can to get the economy moving or to have the foundation for the economy moving, uh, with the exception of getting some financial aid to state and local governments, uh, which we expect they will do. Um, So this is gonna be a bad few months when people see this data, but uh, we know that. The real thing is, is are we gonna get a recovery and how soon, how strong? We think it'll be pretty, pretty strong um at least in the summer um uh, uh partly because we've got a lot of people who are going to have pent-up demand and and they have a lot of savings so they'll be able to go out and buy stuff i mean right now um if you're still working still getting a paycheck you can't buy anything because everything's closed so once it opens up you'll begin to start spending some money so there's good reason to think that we might get a a, a
2: pretty good recovery out of this but we really don't know
1: anything else you'd like to add to that uh, Danielle or, or Gabe?
2: I mean, we know that the recovery is coming. So at the moment, we are shutting down parts of the economy and not allowing it to adjust to meet the new rebalance demand. So I mean, we need a lot more people cleaning and disinfecting I know, offices and, and public places. We need a lot more uh, supplies to help with that. So basically, once we start reopening some sectors of the economy, it will be allowed to adjust with a new, well, I don't want to call it normal, but there will be a change in preferences that, that will persist. And right now, we're not allowing this adjustment. And once we open up parts of the economy, we will let that happen. And that will lead to some bounds. But I agree with, with Don that we just don't know how big it is going to be. So there's going to be a bounce. We don't know how vigorous it's going to be
0: and And we should just to add to that you know in in our forecast we we don't have a double dip in the sense of, or a you know a w shaped recovery which you hear some economists talking about, and that's because we we do expect uh subsequent outbreaks of the the virus uh to be contained um substantially more than than this first initial outbreak was. That being said, we still do think it's going to take quite a bit of time to recover to back where we were at the end of 2019. So in our forecast, you know, that doesn't happen depending on on the metric that you use. um, It it can be, you know, the end of 2021, even the end of 2022 by some of the metrics until we get back to what we used to think of as as normal. So like Don and Daniel said, we don't know. We do expect a rebound. We don't know the exact strength of the rebound. Um, But even even, if you look at a forecast like ours and there's there's a pretty strong rebound there, it's still smaller than than the downturn, than the initial downturn. So it it is still gonna take some time to get back to what we think of as a healthy economy, um, even if things go relatively smoothly from here on out. But the final thing I wanna add to that is is that when you look at these numbers, they are scary. They're they're really jaw-dropping. I've never seen anything like them in my career but you've got to keep it in, in the context that this is an investment in public health. So when you think to to the Great Recession, for instance, and you saw the job losses and, and the unemployment, in, in that situation, we really wanted people to be working, but the economy wasn't producing enough jobs for people. This is a different situation. There are a number of jobs where we really don't want people to be working them right now because uh, we think that doing that economic activity and working those jobs would uh, potentially be spreading the disease. And so we actually want those people to be staying home. Um, Of course, that does cause a lot of economic hardship, and that's why it's really incumbent upon the government to help uh, mitigate that hardship. But it's, it's a different context for the, the absolutely stunning numbers that we're seeing is that we partially need to keep in mind that's, that's an investment in our health as a society and, and, frankly, people's lives.
1: So I think for people who um, remember the, the last recession, which uh, you only need a memory of about 10 years to go back that far, um, one of the things that, that may be on their minds is, um, are, are we going to see uh, another big dip? Um, in property values, I know that's an issue that's on the minds of a lot of local government leaders um, that we're hearing from at SemCog. Um, is are there any are there any indications one way or
0: another uh, about what we can expect there? It's it's really hard to know. So so you know one thing that you learn in the economic forecasting business is that forecasting property prices is extremely difficult. And if you look back to um, you know the problems that preceded the, the previous recession. Uh, you can see a uh, professional forecasters really did not do a, a good job of forecasting house prices. It's it's just a, it's a very difficult thing to do. And the, what makes it even harder is that activity in the market is is very suppressed right now. So it's, it's you know, it's hard to get a read on uh, what would be happening if, you know, you could be having a normal spring, you know, selling and buying season. You know, we don't have that right now. So so activity is suppressed. And so we don't even have a good read on on where things are today, uh, much less to know, you know, where where they will be, uh, you know, as we get into the second half of the year and beyond. Um, There are a couple of things to point out about about this, Um, you know, one potentially mitigating factor is the decline in interest rates and mortgage rates that that should help. Support house prices a little bit, but at the same time, we're seeing a crit- uh, tightening of credit standards, so it's harder to get a mortgage now than it was five months ago. So with all of that being said i I do think we're looking at a highly uncertain time for house prices. I think that the, the you know the uncertainty bands are very wide right now. I would not be surprised to see uh, some declines in prices as as we move forward uh, at the same time I, I don't think that there was a fundamental imbalance. In the economy, uh, the way that there arguably was before the Great Recession, um, t- you know, towards real estate. So, so in that sense, uh, I, I think that that there might be less downside than than there was in the Great Recession, um, and that's certainly true on the real economy part of things. You know, we never got back to the pre the pre-Great Recession levels of home building that we had been seeing. So that will limit the economic damage from the property sector. That's different than the tax revenue effects um, which really come from prices. But you know, one thing to point out is that essentially uh, assessments are already in for the year for 2020. Those really came in 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 December of 2019. So at least in the short run, you know, where the risk is to local governments is is really on the non-payment side. So if, if people start going delinquent on their, you know, their house payments, that will show up as as a cash flow problem to local governments. But the price effect won't show up right away. Um, it really won't be until 2021 and, and beyond that we might start to see that.
1: Okay. And then just uh, one or two more more questions here. What about inflation? What can we expect to happen there?
2: Well, it's a tough one. Um, just to remember quickly what's been going on pre-COVID-19, so there was a very little understanding, even at the Fed, what's going on with inflation, so there's going to be even less understanding going forward. So we we get a really complex shock hitting the economy, which is going to be a demand shock for some sectors, and it's going to be a supply shock for different sectors. and it's hard so basically a supply shock for some sectors may drive inflation higher and for some of them it's demand shock will probably drive them lower on balance we think the overall inflation is likely to slide significantly but there may be things in separate sectors where you see a lot more inflation than they used to so it's 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 really hard to forecast at the moment so one thing so this is, this is talking about like the core or the slower-moving components of prices. The headline numbers are going to be dominated by food and oil prices, Well, prices for gasoline. For gasoline, we think, at least in the near term, the prices may stay low. Uh, in the medium term, all depends on how many shale producers survive this thing i mean if 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 a lot of uh, capital destruction happens there, we may be faced with importing more oil again. There's a lot of uncertainty. With food, there is a lot of uncertainty as well because there is a bigger alignment right now going on between food that was produced for restaurants. and it's it's evidently pretty hard to redirect it to to uh, consumer packaged uh, products. So there may be short-term spikes in prices for certain commodities. It will probably take a while for them to uh, normalize and for the food sector to rebalance to the newly probably persistent tilt to not eating in the restaurants. So basically, there'll probably be a lingering damage to the restaurant and restaurant industry at least until there is a vaccine. So we'll be eating more at home and we'll be buying more takeouts. So it's hard to say what's gonna to happen to food prices. It's possible that there may be some acceleration in the near term. So baseline prices, we think the trend is down. Uh, oil will probably suppress gasoline inflation for food price inflation. It's hard to say what's gonna happen in the near term. So on balance, anyone's guess, basically.
0: Thanks, Daniil. Yeah, so I, I do wanna say, you know just to, to echo Daniel's point, um, we're gonna see a lot of relative price movements. You know, uh, some people will look at what's happening to the Fed's balance sheet, and you saw this in the previous recession, and they said, "Wow, the Fed is adding trillions of dollars to its balance sheet." Um, you know, we think that that it has the potential to cause runaway inflation. We don't see that happening. The Fed has shown that it it has very good control over letting inflation get in, into uh, a wage and price spiral, if you want to call it that. So back, if you look, think about the 1970s, the Fed really lost control of inflation in, in terms of keeping it um, in a reasonable level. Now, the complaint with Fed policy that you sometimes hear is the Fed can't get inflation up to its target. Um, so I, I think that Daniel is right. We, you know, we Don't know exactly what's going to happen with inflation, but I think that what people should not worry about is that we're going to start getting into an inflationary spiral where inflation uh, gets out of control in the long term. Um, So I think, you know, just looking at the size of the Fed's balance sheet uh, gives an incomplete picture of what might happen with inflation. The Fed really does know what it's doing with with the balance sheet in that sense.
1: Okay. And then... um... Danielle, you mentioned a few moments ago that the one thought that's on a lot of people's minds is we're still very much in in the thick of our, our stay at home um, phase here and and sort of wondering, you know, um what the next what the next chapter will look like. You know, you, you use the phrase the new normal. I've heard a lot of a lot of people wondering what what that's going to look like. Um one of the things that that may come along with with the economy starting up again, is that um, some of the jobs um, that people were relying on, or, or perhaps even training for before this began, um, you know, those opportunities may have changed. Are are there any things that that you're seeing or hearing um, in in terms of the job market that this pandemic may change either on a temporary or or a long term basis? The you know, obviously, folks who who are waiting tables, you know, or, or otherwise relying on large events, um, are are ha- having to look at, at other options. Delivery drivers. I don't think there are enough people to deliver <laughs> to deliver groceries right now, based on the um, how long it takes to to be able to get a, a shipment uh, of food to your house, um, you know, compared to to what it was a couple months ago. So are, are there any indicators or, or predictions um, that, that might be reasonable in, in terms of job sources um, that might come out of this moment?
2: I mean, it's hard to say. So when we're talking about a significant change in sectoral demand and it's it, it will take quality data to assess that probably. So, I mean, we have some weekly, daily indicators of unknown quality, which are good enough to gauge the overall trend, qualitatively, but to assess like long-term quantitative trends at this point is virtually impossible. So I mean, we could speculate, uh, but it's basically going to be speculation at this point.
1: Okay, well, fair enough. I I think that's all the questions that I have. Are Are there any things that perhaps we, that we didn't cover, or, or any thoughts uh, that you'd like to leave us with?
0: No, uh, th- thanks for having us, Trevor. It's uh, been a pleasure. I, I think you know the most important thought is we hope uh, everybody here in Southeast Michigan listening to this is is staying well and staying safe as as much as possible. Um, And we hope to uh, talk with you sometime with sunnier news. I look forward to that for sure. Thanks so much, guys.
1: This has been SEMCOG's Region Ahead. Thank you for joining us as we consider the important issues that affect Southeast Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can learn more about SEMCOG's regional planning work, as well as what we are doing to support local governments during the COVID-19 pandemic, at semcog.org. If you're interested in a visual presentation of RSQE's forecast, you can visit the on-demand webinar library on SEMCOG's website and find the presentation Gabe, Don, and Daniil gave on April 14th. Thanks again to our guests for joining us. Be safe
0: and be well.